Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. We want to thank our audience so much for being so loyal, for coming back to hear more stories of nefarious Nancys throughout time, and uh, we're really proud as to how far it's gotten and to how many people we've already been able to cover, and we're looking forward to taking it even further this season. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of Berlin's Schwules Museum. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. So, Hugh, you're going to take us off for today's episode. Who are we going to profile today? Today I want to discuss a man variously known as the Iron Hedgehog and a malignant dwarf, but also as charming, courteous, and uh, most importantly, a good party man. A man who held the position of the People's Commissar for Internal Affairs, the head of the NKVD during Stalin's Great Purge, Nikolai Ivanovich Yezov. Discussing his life, and especially his sexuality, is going to be hard. The nature of Soviet documentation means everything must be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt. Even at the time, what was written as the truth about his life changed quite significantly. We don't even really know where he was born, maybe Lithuania or the Soviet Union, or Russia as it then was. And claims for either are sort of loaded with this political significance. After he died, things became more complicated, and rumour and disavowal are written as truth after the fact for political reasons. Official Soviet sources may need that sort of pinch of salt, but they're also not necessarily untruthful. While accounts of his crimes can contain distortion, exaggeration or falsification, especially as the Cold War began in earnest in the 1940s and 50s. But a large amount of what I'm going to quote uh, from today is drawn from the research of the American historian J. Arch Getty and his associate Oleg Naumov. So I thought I'd say that to begin with so that people know kind of where a lot of this is like, coming from. <clears throat> anyway, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Yezov was born in 1895, probably in... St. Petersburg, and only had one year of primary education before dropping out of work. His background was as part of the, uh, at the time, small industrial working class, and his father wanted to become him to become a tailor. So for a short while, he became a tailor's apprentice, but the work didn't really suit him. And so at the age of 13 or 14, he went into factory work, including at a necktie factory, before starting work at the Putilov factory, which was a vast industrial plant opened a century before to produce cannonballs which in Yezov's childhood was de dedicated to producing rolling stock for Russia's expanding railway system. Even as a young teenager, Nikolai was politically active, engaging in strikes in Tsarist Russia, and not in considerable co political commitment considering the ferocity and violence with which the government repressed the labour disputes. In the early 1910s, when Yezov was entering his late teens, Russia was experiencing a surge of political unrest, Labour unions were rapidly shifting left towards the Bolshevik wing of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, which in 1912 was to split into two factions, the minority Mensheviks, who advocated a bourgeois democratic revolution, and the more radical Bolsheviks. Yezov took, pay, took part in his first major strike in 1912, aged just 17, although latterly he paid, played down a lot of his radicalism, saying, I was no different from any other of the masses, except that I read a lot. I was never a strike-breaker. I participated in strikes, demonstrations, and so forth, suffered repression like many others. This upsurge in labour unrest followed both the major revolution of 1905 that led to the establishment of the Russian Duma, or parliament, and from the massacre of striking gold miners near the River Lena, which killed hundreds. The number of strikes soared from 222 nationwide in 1910 to almost 2,000 just two years later. In August 1914, Germany declared war on Russia in the opening days of World War I. Yesov was conscripted in 1915 and served at the front as an infantryman in the Imperial Russian Army, but he was injured and sent home to recover where he worked again at the Putilov plant. However, he was soon reinscripted, but due to his status as a radical and troublemaker, he wasn't sent to the front as troublemakers were a serious problem due to mutinies in the ranks as the war went against the Russians. Instead, he worked as a metal worker in a munitions factory. In 1917, however, Russia and the world changed. In February, with the Tsar increasingly unpopular and the war being lost, women in Petrograd, which is now St. Petersburg, were celebrating International Women's Day and protesting the soaring bread prices and rationing. The roots of the disaffection were a century long, but the Tsar's disastrous personal management of the war and food shortages caused by inflation and an overstretched uh, railway network had pushed the citizen citizenry to the edge. 
This was combined with the fact that the Tsar, away at the front, had left the Tsarina in charge, and she was increasingly influenced by Russia's greatest love machine, Rasputin. Mm-hmm. The protesting women were joined by maybe quarter of a million striking workers, who flooded the streets despite bans on public gatherings. The Petrograd garrison mutinied, and the Duma established a provisional committee, while Bolsheviks established a Petrograd Soviet, which is a, a sort of council that represents workers and soldiers. The Tsar abdicated, and his brother wisely refused the crown. So now private citizens, the Romanov dynasty was at an end. In Petrograd, a dual power was established. The bourgeois Duma uh, established his provisional government that controlled the bureaucracy administration, while the Soviets represented the workers and the soldiers. Across Russia, hundreds of such Soviets were established, and in April, Lenin, who had been in exile in Switzerland, crossed Germany in a sealed train and arrived at Finland Station, where he began arguing against provisional government. So far, so good. Meanwhile, Yezov, stationed in the munitions work in Vitebsk, uh, began organising amongst his fellow leftists. The city at the time was a hub supplying the 12th Army uh, and also a centre of the railway network. And Yezov, who was self-educated and politically aware, was popular and respected as an organiser. He helped form a militia, uh, workers' militia, the Red Guards, formed to defend the Soviet. In October, Lenin led the Bolsheviks in overthrowing the provisional government to establish full power of the Soviet, but was aware that many of the military divisions at the front were led by officers opposed to Bolshevik power and Lenin scrambled to message Soviets along their route back to Petrograd to impede their return, buying the Petrograd Soviet time. Vitebsk was a major stop on a railway to Petrograd, and Yezov had been elected the political commissar of the city's railway station. He'd managed to dissuade troops called to return by the head of the provisional government, Kerensky, earlier in the year, but a contingent of several thousand Polish soldiers, who had been loyal to the Imperial Russian army, were returning outnumbering the Red Guards and unwilling to sort of stop and chat about it. So Yezov and the Bolsheviks planned a trick, and they sent a young Polish woman out to at least persuade them to stop and negotiate, which they did. And as the talks dragged on, more and more troop trains arrived in sight of the negotiations from the Bolsheviks. And so having outnumbered them, the Bolsheviks offered the Poles a deal. Surrender now or be fired upon. And the Poles surrendered. They didn't know that the arriving troop trains were all empty. Ah. Um, after that, our historical trail grows a bit cold. Um, having defended the revolution, he returned to his life as a worker, albeit a politically active one. But he didn't volunteer for the Red Army when the Russian Civil War began, perhaps because he was the original short king coming in at less than five foot tall. Less than five feet tall? Yeah. Nevertheless, he was drafted in 1919 to serve in a special designation battalion that was probably involved at the sort of dirty end of discipline in the uh, in the civil war, supporting the Cheka, which was the first Bolshevik secret police force, possibly shooting deserters. Soon he became a political commissar working in a radio research laboratory and school in Kazan. Despite not being on the front lines, Yezov would have seen his fair share of misery and violence in this time especially as the Spanish flu ravaged the country. Like, remember, the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918 killed more people in a year than four years of war combined. Hmm. And the Russian Civil War was also a particularly uh, horrible and brutal and scorched earth one. I mean, the the atrocities committed by the white Russian army and the kind of responding um, violence of the Bolsheviks was really horrible. And I think it's important because I think people may know about how difficult World War One and Two were for Russia, but maybe forget about this um, late teens, early twenties additional ravaging war. Yeah, and there were also sort of third parties involved. Um, uh, the uh, Makhno, who was the leader of anarchists in Ukraine, as well as sort of imperial powers taking their role, Britain included, sort of sending troops or getting involved. Um, Are you saying that Western? powers will send troops to block left governments with democratic support from <laughs> taking and exercising political power? Are you suggesting that, Hugh? Anyway. Right in front of my salad? Um, but yeah, you're right. The The Civil War was a sort of huge collective trauma for the country and uh, made a 
already pretty tough life, even harder for most Russians. And we can only sort of imagine the sort of psychological stress that was the legacy of those years. Nevertheless, life does find a way even in the hardest of times. And it was while in Kazan that Nikolai, who was then in his early mid-twenties, met Antonina Titova, a party member and a labour organiser, who was the daughter of peasants, who was two years younger than him. Um, and they fell in love and they married almost immediately in 1919. As the war drew to a close, Yezov's political career bloomed. Despite being in his mid-twenties, his experience as a political commissar was a huge asset, and he was made secretary of his regional party, and it's an astonishing indication of the change of power brought about by the revolution that a working-class guy who was in his early twenties, he'd only had one year of primary education, um, had become a regional governor, governor of a province of what was just five years before one of the biggest imperial powers in the world. Mm-hmm. What's also remarkable, given what was about to happen, was that at the time he wasn't really regarded as power-hungry, but rather as a good friend to comrades, down-to-earth, easy-going, would lend you money, not ask for it back. Um, it was through the victory in the Civil War, but also the establishment of highly organised and centralised political structures that the Bolsheviks managed to spread the revolution and gain control of the entire of Russia. And that bureaucracy was managed and organised precisely by men like Yezov. However, they were, to a large extent, uh, working out as they went along, and the political organisational powers of the Communist Party still lay largely in industrialised urban areas. So Yezov was dispatched to his new role um, as an attempt to sort of bring the region under control and to centralise power of the party. Um, he did an excellent job of this, dispatching his enemies and gaining notice with his efficient, well-written reports that were probably actually written by his wife. However, he didn't really like the area and he dreamed of returning to urban life and to power, writing to a friend. I tell you that I can't find holes like this anywhere in the RSFSR. It's the original godforsaken place. To tell the truth, I'm so fed up with all the paper shuffling that it's time to go back to the factory. Hmm. Well, he got his way, partly because of an ongoing battle with another party official, which he, he won, but which sort of risked exacerbating the tensions between different ethnicities in the region. But he was recalled and assigned to Kerzigia, uh, where the parties struggled to sort of gain control and, crucially, to collect taxes. He rose quickly through the party bureaucracy there, becoming chief of the personnel department for the entire region within two years. Anyway, I'm going to skip ahead a bit here because I think you've got the impression about him. Um, he may not have been educated uh, or had flair, but he was a hard worker, an autodidact and a loyal Bolshevik. And also he had a knack for administration, which of course made him the ideal apparatchik for Joseph Stalin. Uh-oh. So, Stalin. Stalin had been a member of the RSDLP since its very earliest days, uh, and a Bolshevik since before the 1905 revolution. He had organised strikes and demonstrations, he had been jailed and exiled, he had organised bank robberies, and he had published theoretical Marxist texts. He was also, at this point in his life, astonishingly beautiful, it is worth noting, in, in a way that you would not suspect from, from the image that we all have of him in our heads. I encourage our listeners to Google him. Yeah, young Stalin uh, is hot. But uh, in 1917, he returned from exile to join the February Revolution in Petrograd. And although he wasn't necessarily a public figure at that time, he had become an important bureaucratic figure within the Bolsheviks sitting on the committee to draft a new constitution and backing Lenin, Lenin in establishing the Cheka. Uh, in early 1922, Stalin became general secretary of the party, and then a month later, Lenin suffered a massive stroke that partially paralysed him. Stalin had been a key ally of Lenin, although they disagreed on a lot, and over the following two years, Lenin grew increasingly suspicious of him. However, in 1924, Lenin died, and Stalin had a freer hand to consolidate power within the party. And that I think that question of what would have happened to um, Soviet communism if Stalin had not managed to consolidate power is one of the most sort of tantalizing what ifs in all of human history. Yeah, definitely. There's a counterfactual, yeah. Um, but he did die. But he did. And Stalin did take over. Yeah. Um, and the key obstacle between Stalin and the uh, being sort of the heir to Lenin was Trotsky, who soon joined together with Stalin's old enemies, uh, Kamenev and Zinoviev, 
but their attempts to curb his power failed. Um, and Trotsky was sent first into internal exile, and then in 1929 he was banished from the country. Stalin's key theoretical argument was to advance socialism in one country, which was aimed at securing the hold of the revolution within the USSR, as opposed to Trotsky and his followers, who believed the success of the revolution could only be guaranteed by spreading it internationally. And they were, in a way, more right than they even could have known. But history has a way of making a lot of things seem obvious. By the way, I'm not trying to sell anyone a newspaper here. Uh, <laughs> Just to uh, burnish my anti-Stalinist credentials. Oh, thanks for that. Anyway, um, under Lenin, the Soviet Union had introduced the new economic policy, which had introduced some limited opportunities for markets within the state for small businesses in order to stabilize the economy. And Stalin had been a supporter of the policy, but he tacked left towards the end of the decade, attacking the small business owners, or NEP men, as they were known, new economic policy, mm-hmm. um, as well as a wealthier class of peasants called the Kulaks, who he claimed were hoarding and stockpiling grain. He instituted in- increased industrialization and some huge infrastructure projects, and he forced the collectivization of most of the remaining privately owned farms, which was known as the liquidation of the Kulaks. Since the early 1920s, following the defeat of the German Revolution, the communists had adopted a policy of a united front, arguing that communists should organise alongside independent and non-revolutionary socialists in class struggle against the bourgeoisie. And that was a policy advocated by Trotsky. But in the late 1920s, Stalin adopted a critique of social fascism, arguing that uh, social democracy was actually a wing of fascism, and that social democrats, not fascism, were the real threat to the revolution. This changing theoretical position and this split between Trotsky who advocated world revolution and a united front uh, and Stalin who advocated socialism in one country and attacked social fascism uh, becomes really important as we begin to discuss uh, homosexuality in the Soviet Union at the time. And this is yet another place where uh, history really proved one of those arguments uh, right and one of them wrong I think we can say in a pretty clear way. Yeah, I think so. We're going to lose our uh, fan base among uh, teenage Stalinists <laughs> with anime Twitter profiles. But um, So, back to homosexuality. Um, homosexual relations had been prohibited in Russia under the Tsar since Nicholas I in 1832, But despite this, there was, of course, a a thriving gay underworld and gay culture within Tsarist Russia. Have you heard Tchaikovsky? Yeah. Um, In 1917, following the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks revoked entirely the Tsarist criminal code, including those passages referring to homosexuality. And so in doing so, they decriminalized homosexuality, although it was part of a general overturning of the, the Tsarist law. They didn't uh, yeah, they, they didn't reinstate any new laws against homosexuality in the new constitution in 1918 or in the one in 1924. Um, in an earlier podcast we did uh, on Anthony Blunt, we discussed, I think, that um, this lack of legal restriction against homosexual behavior and a more open discussion of sexuality within the party compared to liberal democracies at the time was a key aspect in drawing young homosexual men like Blunt towards the USSR. And uh, a listener wrote in and sort of objected that the idea that we were portraying the Soviet Union as some sort of utopia for gays. So I kind of want to clear that up. Like the freedom offered was um, a byproduct of a more general wiping away of czarist rules. Um, and there wasn't a, any general programs to help overcome discrimination against homosexuality. But nonetheless, there was a relatively open discussion about sexuality within the Communist Party which would have been eye-opening to Western communists who are living under political systems where, um, in the UK, for example, even writing about sex could see you censored by obscenity laws. So uh, at the same time in England in the 1920s, uh, the Well of Loneliness, Lady Chatterley's Lover and Ulysses were all banned for obscene content, so that that discussion couldn't be had. And in the US too, banned in Boston. Yeah. Um but at the same time, discussion within communist circles was more frank. Um, the People's Commissariat, Commissariat of Health, in particular, took a liberal line, with the Commissar Nikolai Samashko um, advocating for homosexual emancipation as part of the sexual revolution. And the Commissariat sent representatives to our old friend Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research, 
as part of international conferences on sexuality. Actually, Hirschfeld himself uh, traveled to the USSR in the 1920s. Um, the USSR hosted and funded a lot of the conferences of the World League for Sexual Reform, which was an association that Hirschfeld actually started, and they kept it going, actually, for a couple of years after the Nazis came in, even as in the early 30s, things started to change there. So there really was this sense, I think, among a lot of people, um, and apologies to the listener who wrote in, but that listener may be just mistaken. Uh, I think there really was a sense among a lot of people, a lot of progressives at that time, that the cause of the Soviet Union was the cause of uh, progressive and forward-thinking people everywhere, whether they're thinking about homosexuality or feminism or um, anti-imperialism or various different kinds of progressive. I agree. I agree with that. Um, but I, I wonder what lived experience wouldn't for for like the average uh, Russian homosexual at the time might not have lived up to that level of uh, discourse in terms of their experience of oppression. Oh, certainly not. No, yeah. um, it wasn't sort of Mykonos on the Volga. Someone needs to make a really bad tech house remix of the Internationale. <laughs> um, but anyway, even this sort of um, more liberal attitude began to change from um, 1928, when the stage of the revolution, so-called, reached the third period with industrialization, collectivization, as we were saying before, and the official adoption of this idea of social fascism. Stalin's battle with Trotsky over control over the Soviet Union might have been won, but the general battle against Trotsky's influence continued. Internal problems within the USSR, um, lack of productivity, inefficiency, mismanagement, were all attributed to social fascists and to Trotskyist wreckers, intent on bringing down the revolution. Stalin began to adopt increasingly nationalistic and chauvinistic rhetoric, and homosexuality was beginning to be weaponized as a bourgeois decadency, and as such an agent of fascism. Um, in 1933, the head of OGPU, the successor organization to the Cheka wrote to Stalin warning him of the threat of homosexual conspirators, saying 130 homosexuals had been arrested, having been found, quote, establishing networks of salons, centers, dens, groups, and other organized formations of pederasts, with the eventual transformation of these organizations into outright espionage cells. Pederast activists, using the caste-like exclusivity of pederastic circles for plainly counter-revolutionary aims, had politically demoralized various social layers of the young men, including young workers, and even attempted to penetrate the army and navy. Demoralize me, daddy. Yeah. It's really fascinating, though, because this is the exact... I mean, if you if you read what people are writing about homosexual men in government service in the U.S., 10 years later, 15 years later, it's that they are seducing our young men into communism. Yeah, exactly. It's um, like, we're fucked no matter what we do. We're always politically, we're always sort of politically wrong. And it's always this kind of like concealed, seditious. Um, we're always a useful scapegoat, I think. Seduction. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are accused in those environments of being a homosexual, then you quickly lose, uh, you lose your friends who might be willing to defend you because they don't want to be tainted. Yeah. Um, anyway, a law was passed um, prohibiting sodomy and aggravated sodomy, and in 19, uh, which was in the end of 1933. And in 1934, Article 121 was added to the Constitution, outlawing homosexual activity, which stayed there until, uh, the, well, 1993, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Which makes this kind of dual tragedy where the two countries in Europe, which had had the most uh, liberal censorship environments and discussions of homosexuality uh, up until that point, which had been Germany and the USSR, both within two years in the early 1930s, introduced some of the harshest penalties against it to be found anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, and what little explanation of this change of policy there was, was focused on um, pederasty or pedophilia and on the corruption of homosexuality in a Russia where a um, non-bourgeois energy was being converted into an intellectual drive, which was sort of echoing the increasingly nationalistic tone that was being taken by Stalin. Um, the Soviet writer uh, Maxim Gorky wrote in an article in, pra in Prada, Pravda, not Prada, uh, entitled Proletarian Humanism, he wrote, quote, Not tens, but hundreds of facts speak about the destructive, corrupting influence of fascism on the youth of Europe. To enumerate the facts is disgusting but necessary, while the memory refuses to be loaded with the dirt which the bourgeoisie is increasingly, diligently and abundantly producing. 
I will point out, however, that in a country where the proletariat manages courageously and successfully, i.e. the USSR, a homosexuality that corrupts young people is recognised as socially criminal and punishable. And in a cultural country of great philosophers, scientists and musicians, i.e. Germany, it manifests freely and with impunity. A sarcastic saying has already taken shape. Destroy homosexuals. Fascism will disappear. There is, uh, there is a suggestion at a time amongst Russian gays that Gorky's antipathy towards homosexuality was the result of his son being, quote-unquote, seduced by another man. I mean, in fact, destroy homosexuals and fascism will appear. Destroying homosexuals is one of the key ingredients of fascism. I know our listeners know that, but I just need to say that again because that Gorky quote is so gross. Um, again, within the context of a communist party that had been perhaps more forward-thinking generally on sexuality than bourgeois political parties in the West, this did generate some debate. Um, the British communist Harry White, who was then working in Moscow, wrote to Stalin a few weeks after the article was passed in 1934, requesting the theoretical grounding for the decision. In the letter, White lays out what he sees as the arguments um, that bourgeois the Bourgeois society opposes homosexuality because it needs a reserve army of labour from reproducing families, and that homosexuals uh, constitute an identifiable minority, such as um, racial or ethnic minorities. He also notes that sexology at the time identified homosexuality as an immutable characteristic, and that the number of homosexuals is so small that it posed no threat to the dictatorship of the proletariat. White wrote that he, quote, believes that the decree contradicts both the facts of life itself and the principles of Marxism-Leninism. As a good communist, White attempted to understand the political function of the law in suppressing bourgeois opposition to Stalin, but fundamentally he regarded that it's possible to be both a good party member and a homosexual, but his plea fell on deaf ears. Uh, Stalin didn't respond, but simply annotated the letter with the remark, Archive, an idiot and a degenerate, J. Stalin. I've been called that, uh, been called both, sometimes in the same night. Um, I think it's really interesting, this Harry White argument, um, and thinking about that in context with another one of our old friends on the show, another communist Harry, Harry Hay, who at this period uh, is beginning to learn his Stalinism at the California Labor School, and ironically, it is Stalin's concept of the national minority and the role of the national minority inside the uh, sort of Soviet collective um, that becomes the model for the way that Hay ends up conceiving of the homosexual figure. Yeah, and it's smart politics on behalf of both White and uh, Hay because. Uh, sort of comparing the homosexual minority towards the sort of ethnic or national minority, because that was, um, in many ways, Stalin, the way that Stalin became, like, rose to prominence within the Bolshevik party is sort of making this argument about, um, rather than eradicating national differences within the, what was to become the Soviet Union, they could be sort of taken into the Soviet Union as nationalities, like, mm-hmm. component nationalities. Anyway, back to Yezov. Um, by the early 1930s, he was divorced from his first wife and had remarried Evgenia Fiegenberg. And having performed well in the Commissariat of Agriculture during the period of collectivization, he was living in Moscow and crucially had begun to um, know Stalin. Uh, in 1930, he was made head of the distribution department of the Central Committee. In 1934, um, there was the 17th Party Congress and Yezov was elected a member of the Central Committee the Organising Bureau of the Central Committee and the Bureau of the Party Control Commission. All of these are quite dry names, but essentially this is to do with sort of um, administration and management of uh, the party itself and who's in the party. And then if you can manage and administer the personnel of the party, then you have a huge amount of control over um, which allies get put into which positions for Stalin. However, the... 17th Party Congress was also a decisive moment for the Soviet Union. Sergei Kirov, who was a close ally and personal friend of Stalin's, had a high degree of autonomy in contradicting or disagreeing with Stalin because he was sort of trusted. Yet in the elections during the Congress, Kirov received only three negative votes against him, while Stalin received over 100. We don't know exactly how many now. Um, and during the Congress, a group of party veterans approached Kirov and discussed with him the possibility of taking over control of the party in response to the famine and unrest caused by Stalin's what was seen as disastrous collectivization policies. 
Not only did Kirov decline, but he informed Stalin of the conversation. This was an unparalleled threat to Stalin's authority. On the 1st of December, Kirov was assassinated in his offices in St. Petersburg, now named Leningrad. So who killed Kirov? Uh, we, we don't really know. But we do know that on Stalin's orders, his bodyguard of NKVD officers, um, the NKVD were the agency that replaced Okpu, which replaced Cheka, the secret police. Um, his bodyguard had been scaled back. And we also know that Kirov was probably one of the few people capable of challenging Stalin, even if he showed no intention to. Stalin immediately uh, ordered a investigation that found responsibility lay with the opposition within the party, what was called the left opposition, um, maybe people who were more sympathetic towards some of Trotsky's ideas or former allies of Trotsky. And so a great period of repression was to begin, culminating just a few years later in what's known as the Great Purge. This was a period of absolutely colossal repression of anyone within the party or within society who was seen to pose a threat, real imagined or imagined or even a possible threat to Stalin's power. And it was based largely upon fabricated conspiracies of Trotskyist and bourgeois wreckers. The idea that right through society there was this vast conspiracy on all levels aimed at overturning the revolution. Of the 139 full members and candidate members who were elected at the 17th Party Congress to the Central Committee in 1934, only 41 were still alive in 1940. Holy so shit. He killed 98 of them. Jesus. Who was overseeing the investigation of uh, opposition figures like Zinoviev, Kamenev and their associates? One Nikolai Ivanovich Yezov. There's our girl. Yeah. Stalin was very pleased with Yezov's work. And in 1936, he made him the head of the NKVD. He was present at the executions of Zinoviev and Kamenev after the first major show trial, the so-called Trial of 16 in 1936, uh, when their supposed group, which was called the Trotskyite, Kamenevite, Zinovievite leftist counter-revolutionary bloc, were forced to admit their counter-revolutionary conspiracy and so purged. Finally, I found a nice snappy name for my own political tendency. Yeah. Um, his first task was to rid Stalin of his immediate predecessor, uh, Genrik Yagoda, apologies for my pronunciation, who had initiated the purges originally and the show trials, um, but had written to Stalin in the summer of 1936, saying that public opinion was turning against a repression, which Stalin interpreted as a suggestion to call off the show trial of the Marshal of the Soviet Union. The military strategist known in the West as the Red Napoleon, Mikhail Tukhachevsky. Tukhachevsky was eventually executed, his conf uh, confession was literally splattered of his own blood. <laughs> Stalin sent a telegram to the Politburo that read, We consider it absolutely necessary and urgent that Comrade Yezov be appointed to the head of the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs. Yagoda has obviously proved unequal to the task of exposing the Trotskyite-Zinovievite bloc. Yezov concocted a plot that Yagoda was planning to assassinate Stalin. Raiding Yagoda's home, he found 3,904 pornographic photos, 11 <laughs> pornographic films, 165 pornographically carved pipes. You never bought a pornographically carved pipe? Uh, a dildo. And the two bullets that had killed Zinoviev and Kamenev. Like most accused in the show trials, uh, Yagoda admitted guilt, but he expected clemency. According to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, Yagoda was an obvious criminal type. This millionaire and murderer simply could not imagine that his superior murderer up on high would not stand up for him, protect him at the last moment. Just as if Stalin were sitting right there in the hall, Yagoda self-confidently and insistently begged him directly for mercy. I appeal to you. For you, I built two great canals. And one who was present recounts that just at the moment th through a window on the second floor of the hall, seemingly behind a Muslim curtain. In the shadows, flared a match, and while it lasted, the outlines of a pipe could be seen. Hmm. A bit of um, creative license, probably, there. Probably. Um, but Yagoda was executed. Hey. So convinced of his conspiracy of massive proportions, Yezov implemented quotas for his NKVD agents. Well, like, that's always good. Yeah, literally quotas of people who could be should be tried and found guilty. The Supreme Soviet was purged, the military was purged, even the NKVD itself was purged. 
exile, execution, or the gulag, uh, which was the Soviet prison camp system, was your fate, as well as your family's fate. Yezov knew that he was rounding up innocent people, but he said, There will be some innocent victims in this fight against fascist agents. We are launching a major attack on the enemy. Let there be no resentment if we bump someone of an elbow. Better that ten innocent people should suffer than one spy get away. When you chop wood, chips fly. Uh, the population of the Gulag uh, tripled in two years, almost 700,000 new prisoners. According to Getty, during his time as the head of the NKVD, almost 1.5 million people were arrested. Uh, obviously, most of them were just regular citizens, and 700,000 of them were shot, usually without trial. But it couldn't go on forever. Yezov had helped Stalin destroy his opposition, but in the process he'd gained far too much power for Stalin's comfort, and the terror needed to be reined in. One of the NKVD's highest-ranking officers in the far east of the country, Gendrik Lyoshkov, had been called back to Moscow, and expecting he was due to be purged himself, probably rightly, he defected to Japan. Yezov had been protecting up to this point, and so he was rightly worried as a result. In August of 1938, Stalin appointed uh, Lavrenti Beria as Yezov's deputy at the NKVD, and he soon began conducting operations and signing off policies without Yezov's uh, knowledge or consent. Uh-oh. Yeah, Yezov saw the writing on the wall. In September, he asked his wife for a divorce. Distressed, she wrote repeatedly to Stalin, which can't really have helped his case. In October of 1938... The Politburo began a series of investigations into NKVD quote-unquote excesses. Yezov became increasingly stressed. He was drinking heavily. He was absent from work. Mm. It's thought that Yezov, um, yeah, on, and then on October 19th, his wife killed herself following the arrest of a number of her friends and former lovers. And it's thought that Yezov supplied her of the sleeping pills. Less than a week later, he was removed from his post as head of the NKVD in the end of November. But then Stalin sat on the case for a few months, and it wasn't until March of 1939 that Yezov was finally removed from the Central Committee, and on the 10th of April was arrested and taken to Sukhanovo Prison, which was known as the worst prison in Moscow, which had been designed and built by Yezov himself uh, a year previously for the interrogation and torture of special high-ranking political prisoners. Ah, oh, just always, these people always end up caught in their own traps, don't they? Yeah. He remained in jail for almost a year, interrogated about his supposed role in German espionage plots, um, Trotskyist wrecking campaigns, assassina- assassination attempts against Stalin, and so on and so forth, um, and tortured in the process. Mm. By now, you should realise, obviously, none of those are true, any more than uh, his being forced to rewrite his own life story so that he was now a Lithuanian, and that his mother was a barroom dancer and his father a pimp. Huh, so actually, in the show trial, he was forced to create a less politically correct backstory, yeah. such that it could be explained away as a kind of genetic difference. Typical Lithuanians. Um. Um, on April 24th, he admitted to his lifetime of homosexual relationships. His confession started, I think it is essential that I inform the investigation of a series of new facts concerning my moral personal dissoluteness. I mean my long-time vice of homosexuality. This began in my early youth when I lived as an, ex- uh, as an apprentice to a tailor. At around the age of 15 or 16 years, I had a few instances of perverse sexual acts with other, other apprentices of my own age of the same tailor shop. This vice renewed itself in the old Tsarist army in frontline conditions. Aside from one chance contact with one of the soldiers of our company, I had relations with a certain Filatov, my friend from Leningrad with whom we served in the same regiment. Our relations were mutual, that is, the female part was played first by one side, then by another. Afterwards, Filatov was killed at the front. He went on to list a number of homosexual relationships throughout his life, um, throughout the interrogation, not just on that one occasion. The interrogator's report ends with a list of indictments, the fifth and last being, For adventurist and careerist goals created a case about an imaginary mercury poisoning of himself, organised the murder of a series of persons who were inconvenient to him and who could have exposed his treasonous work and had sexual relations with men. Hmm. Brought to trial in February of 1940, he renounced his confession, uh, knowing that nothing would spare him. His final requests include the following. My fate is obvious. 
My life, naturally, will not be spared since I have contributed to this at my preliminary investigation. I ask only one thing. Shoot me quietly, without tortures. I request that Stalin be informed that I have never in my life deceived a party politically, a fact known to thousands of persons who know my honesty and modesty. I request that Stalin be informed that everything that has happened to me is simply the confluence of circumstances, and the possibility cannot be excluded that enemies whom I have overlooked may have had a hand in this too. Tell Stalin that I shall die with his name on my lips. Loyal to the end, Jesus. Most of them were. Um, He was taken to a small NKVD station in Moscow, rather than the headquarters in the Lubyanka. In the basement of the station was a chamber with a sloping floor and a drain in the centre to allow the blood to be hosed down quickly and easily following the execution of prisoners. Yezov knew the chamber, as he'd built it himself to his own specifications. Dragged there, screaming, on the 4th of February 1940, he was executed with a bullet to the back of his head. He was 44. We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon... T-shirts, episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. So the first question that comes immediately to mind, Hugh, is was this guy actually gay? I mean, is there any evidence that the um, confession to homosexuality in this kind of show trial was any more real than anything else? Um. That is an interesting question. I mean, the reason I chose him for this episode was because I do think that uh, his situation really demonstrates the development of policies towards homosexuals in the Soviet Union. And also hits on this interesting point that we keep coming up again and again, which is the, the sort of political manipulation of allegations of homosexuality to discredit um, political rivals or, you know... Um, uh, or to spread this sort of fear through society has happened in the 1950s in the US in the Lavender Scare. Um, so that's, I think he's interesting to discuss whether he was actually gay or not. But was he? Mm, it's hard to say. There were discussions sort of afterwards, like into the like post-Stalinist era, into the 1950s and 60s. Um, there's some evidence that he was sort of known amongst gay men in Moscow and assumed to be gay or to have had gay relationships, uh, certainly possible. There were um, openly homosexual politicians in the Soviet Union. Um, uh, Georgi Chicherin, who was a, um, a diplomat, was openly gay. Um, and also, in terms of that position of power, your sexual proclivities kind of weren't really restrained by uh, law or you know anything. So if you, if, you, if you look at the life story of Beria, who was his replacement, the one who had him killed. Um, a real monster of a sexual sadist who was known to rape and murder women uh, with impunity during the 1940s. So it's not like he would have held back had he had he been gay. So this is possible and there were discussions about it afterwards. So there, there seems to be some evidence. But having said that, in the Getty book, he seems to suggest that he thinks it's all a, um, a, a false accusation. Hmm. I, I feel justified in discussing him on the show, though, because uh, precisely because of the fact that he might have been accused of that, and what that says about attitudes towards the Soviet, uh, towards homosexuality in the Soviet Union. Absolutely, and then also thinking about another kind of butcher uh, that we've talked about on this show from another authoritarian regime of the 1930s, um, someone like Ernst Reim. Uh, for Reim, there's definitely more evidence that he actually was. I mean, I don't think it's even in question. But in a similar kind of way, you have somebody whose sexual proclivities were not particularly an issue, even in the kind of homophobic 
even in the context of a party with a very officially homophobic lion. Um, in Rehm's case, the opposition social democrats attempted to make it into an issue to try to point out Nazi hypocrisy uh, and kind of play on this kind of assumed public homophobia. Um, and then it didn't work. Um, and then he got in and then the homosexuality became one of the, um, one of the justifications for the purge. Um, but that was also had to do with uh, sort of fear of a different fraction within the Nazis taking power. Yeah. Like, like I said earlier, it's a really handy slur. Um, if you are uh, trying to justify it towards a wider population that probably hold homophobic positions, but it might not be a reason to commit a purge in the first place. If, um, if, if because you know if you're Stalin, like, it's probably the least of your worries. Like who your people are sleeping with, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a useful excuse. Um, I mean, you do want to know who your people are sleeping with in case you ever need to purge them. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I think also it's interesting because it does mark as well this switch in um, uh, values in the Soviet Union in terms of an increasingly con- socially conservative nationalistic chauvinistic position that Stalin was taking all throughout the thirties and then into the forties when he, uh, needing sort of more support for the, um, for the, in the second world war, which is called the great patriotic war in Russia, he sort of mobilized reactionary nationalist and religious forces, um, which undoubtedly sort of cemented a lot of these legislations in place. And there was an appetite for it. Um, speaking to that a little bit, I mean, that, that kind of explains how it got cemented, uh, right? The need to um, have these kinds of reactionary forces behind the regime. Uh, do you have a sense of, other than uh, maybe his own personal animus, uh, what some of the broader kind of structural and political reasons might have been uh, for Stalin to begin turning in a more uh, socially conservative and... Um, restrictive direction. It wasn't just uh, limited to homosexuality, for example. The new 20th Soviet Union was a center of international avant-gardism in art and in music, and then Stalin gets in and very famously starts to turn on turn on all of that. I mean, there's the, the infamous uh, moment when Stalin goes to the premiere of uh, Shostakovich's opera, Lady Macbeth of the Mitzensk District, and is seen to walk out before the curtain falls, and then Shostakovich lives literally the rest of his life in fear of discredit and uh, of being kind of purged. So um, is there kind of a sense of how, um, of why this began to turn? I mean, was Stalin just a kind of thick pig-headed uh, anti-intellectualist, or were there kind of structural or political reasons why this uh, kind of thinking uh, came to the fore at that moment in the Soviet Union? Well, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, I guess there will be a sort of aspect if you are living in a really, really... I mean, there's, there's, there's these two ways of like understanding Soviet power and Stalinism. Uh, the one which was dominant in historiography throughout the Cold War, which is that Stalin had this totalitarian grip um, on power and uh, controlled everything. And then there is a more sort of structuralist argument that comes around towards the end of the Cold War, of which Getty is one of the proponents, in which to say that uh, circumstances guided Stalin as much as Stalin could guide circumstances. And actually he was reacting a lot of the time and his reactions tended, obviously tended towards an authoritarian response. I think one other, element of it in terms of uh, social conservatism and the repression of the avant-garde and the ability to think about these things is if you if you live in fear of these purges you do not want to stand out in any way whatsoever experimentation is not a good look when uh, when people are looking for um, uh, new people to uh, new scapegoats you know so trying to just fit into the, the the flow of society the flow of the political um uh the political mainstream and not poke your head out is actually what all these people were doing you know including um Yezov, you know like he's not he he's just an administrator who is put into a place where he knows his the best thing he can do for his his job and his role and to save his own head is to um is to continue engaging and perpetrating these sort of atrocities in terms of the purges he's not somebody who's necessarily ideologically driven towards um towards making those purges himself, although obviously they keep, he doesn't, you know, have a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem to have been particularly ideologically anything, because he goes from being 
this kind of uh, loyal soldier of Lenin to being a loyal soldier of Stalin. He seems to have just mostly been a loyal soldier, and he died a loyal soldier in the torture chamber of his own construction. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, I think that brings us to our concluding question. Yezhov, bad gay? Not bad gay? Not bad not gay? Where uh, do we fall? Well, I mean, bad. Oh, bad. Oh, well, that's, I mean, I assume that would be obvious. Uh, by all political and moral standpoints, a truly terrible human being who uh, is responsible personally for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, you're going to lose us our entire tanky fan base. Um, all gay? seven of them. Gay, I'm not so sure about. Um, I would be unwilling to stake it entirely upon his confession. I'll say that much. But his life story and his relationship with homosexuality, um, I think, does tell us a lot about Soviet attitudes towards homosexuality in the 1920s and 30s and how they changed. Yeah, and I mean, homosexuality killed him, whether it was his homosexuality or this assumed homosexuality uh, that is what led to his untimely demise. So, um, what are the sources, Hugh, other than that Getty book, or maybe including it so we get the name, uh, that people used, uh, that you used, rather, to research this episode and that people could turn to if they wanted to learn more? Yeah, there's two books by Getty uh, and uh, Naumov. First is Yezov, The Rise of Stalin's Iron Fist. And the second is The Road to Terror, both of which I uh, referred to. And there's also a book called Homosexual Desire in Revolutionary Russia by Dan Healy that's well worth reading. And online, there's a couple of extras that I uh, referred to, one of which was um, From Emancipation to Criminalization, Stalinist Persecution of Homosexuals from 1934 by Fred Weston, which can be found on Marxist.com. And also Harry uh, Harry White's letter, to Stalin, can a homosexual be in a communist in a communist party, which is also on Marxist.com. And there's also a very interesting article on Libcom.org called um, Gay in the Gulag, which is about the lives of gay men um, who were sent to the Gulag. Very nice. Well, you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGaysPod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me at Hugh Lemmy, or you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Utopian Drivel, which is at hugh.substack.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bad, 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 bad,